uh, which is really what we're going to read about uh, and learn about more today as we jump into the book of Judges. We're back in this book. We're going to be spending the next few weeks there working through some really familiar but some really strange stories as well. Hopefully in the lead up to this morning, you've had a chance to read over Judges 4 and 5, the chapters we're looking at this morning. Um, they're interesting. They're difficult. There's some strange stuff, some really brutal stuff, but some really exciting stuff as well. We're not going to read both Judges 4 and 5 this morning because they are quite long chapters. But right now I'm going to throw to Ben, uh, Ben Sheriff, and he's going to be reading Judges 4 for us. So please grab your Bible, open it up to Judges 4 and follow along with us. Judges 4. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, now that Ehud was dead. So the Lord sold them into the hands of Javan, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. Sisera, the commander of his army, was based in Harasheth Hagoyim. Because he had 900 chariots fitted with iron and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years, they cried to the Lord for help. Now Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Lepidus, was leading Israel at the time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites went up to her to have their disputes decided. She went, sent for Barak, son of Abinuam, from Kadesh in Naphtali, and said to him, The Lord of is God, the God of Israel commands you, go take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun, and lead them up to Mount Tabor. I will lead Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River and give him into your hands. Barak said to her, If you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. Certainly I will go with you, said Deborah. But because of the course you are taking, the honour will not be yours. For the Lord will deliver Sisera into, your, into the hands of a woman. So Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh. There Barak summoned Zebulun and Naphtali, and 10,000 men went up under his command. Deborah also went up with him. Now Heber the Canaanite had left the other Canaanites, the descendants of Hobab, Moses' brother-in-law, and pitched his tent by the great tree in Zananim near Kadesh. When they told Sisera that Barak son of Abinuam had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera summoned from Hagar, Harasheth Hagoyim to the Kishon River, all his men and his 900 chariots fitted with iron. And Deborah said to Barak, go, this is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? So Barak went down Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. At Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled on foot. Barak pursued the chariots and army as far as Harasheth Hagoyim, and all Sisera's troops fell by the sword. Not a man was left. Sisera, meanwhile, fled on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Haber the Canaanite, because there was an alliance between Jabin, king of Hazor, and family of the Haber the Canaanite. Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Come, my lord, come right in. Don't be afraid. So he entered her tent, and she covered him with a blanket. I'm thirsty, he said. 
Please give me some water. She opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him up. Stand in the doorway of the tent, he told her. If someone comes by and asks you, is anyone in there? Say no. But Jael, Haber's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him while he lay fast asleep, exhausted. She drove the peg through his temple into the ground and he died. Just then Barak came by in pursuit of Sisera and Jael went out to meet him. Come, she said, I will show you the man you're looking for. So he went in with her and there lay Sisera with the tent peg through his head, dead. On that day, God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan, before the Israelites. And the hand of the Israelites pressed harder and harder against Jabin, king of Canaan, until they destroyed him. All right, thanks very much, Ben. Uh, keep your Bibles open. We're going to work through that chapter. We're also going to work through chapter 5, uh, which we haven't read. So if you're able to follow along, you'll be well served by that. Before we jump in, though, let me pray uh, that God would help us as we uh, read his word this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, even when it records stories which sound strange to us or even gruesome and difficult, we thank you that in them we read of you. We read of the way you work in this world. We read of your character of your power and your goodness and your grace. And so we pray that you would open our eyes and ears this morning. Help us to recognize your voice speaking to us. Help us to be humble and submit ourselves to you and let your word teach and shape and transform us. May your spirit work powerfully amongst us this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, it is unusual uh, in the Bible to get two chapters like this side by side, to have the same events recorded in both story and in song. And you might ask yourself the question, well, why? Why do we have these two accounts uh, right next to each other? Well, maybe you can think of it like this. Um, I love to go trout fishing. My, unfortunately, my chances to do that are rare uh, and even rarer at the moment. But when I go trout fishing, what I tend to do is called sight fishing. So I'm not blindly casting into the lake or the river, uh, just hoping that there might be a fish there. Uh, what I'm trying to do is see a fish, stalk the fish, and then cast to that fish and ideally catch it. That's what I'm trying to do. It really works out that way, but that's, that's the point. Now, if you've ever looked at a stream or if you've ever looked at a river, you'll know it's actually pretty hard to see a fish. I mean, they tend to be underwater, which makes it quite hard, and that water tends to be reflective. You can't really see below the surface. Uh, sometimes you might see a ripple. Sometimes you might see a shadow, maybe just a hint, but you, you can't be sure. You can't see properly and it's quite hard. Well, what you can get is uh, special glasses. You can get polarized or Polaroid glasses. Don't tell me, ask me the difference. I don't know. But what these glasses can do for you is help you see below that surface reflection. They're a bit like magic. You look at the water and all of a sudden a lot of that reflection is gone and you can see what's really there. And that impossible to see fish suddenly becomes possible to see. Uh, it's not easy, but it's easier. You can see below, you can see what's really there. And that's kind of how these two chapters work together for us. 
Uh, chapter four paints to us a picture of what's happening on the surface. There's lots there uh, and really interesting and important things. But chapter five is like putting on our Polaroids. It's looking below the surface. It's seeing what's beneath. And importantly, who's beneath? That's how the chapters work. And ultimately, what they show us uh, is, is so important for us because it changes the way we see ourselves. But more importantly, in light of what we see there, it changes the how we see the times we live in as well. So we're going to study these chapters and look through them this morning. Uh, a quick question as we start, a uh, quick question for you to consider for yourself. Who is the judge in chapters four and five? Don't you use the title of your Bible to cheat? Uh, ask yourself, who's the judge? Maybe kids, if you're trying to work this out, who do you think is the most important character in this story? Just spend some time thinking about that question. I mean, there's really three possible answers, isn't there? We've got Deborah. Deborah, this uh, amazing woman who is leading uh, or judging, depending on your translation, the nation of Israel. She's, she's there in the very centre of the land under her, uh, her tree, uh, holding court. Uh, she's also a prophetess. She's clearly a woman of some note. But then we've got Barak. I mean, his very name means lightning. He sounds like an impressive sort of guy, doesn't he? He, he's the war leader. He's the one who rescued Israel, who fights for them. But then as a bit of a left field option, we've also got jail, don't we? This, this kind of mysterious woman who actually is the one who gets the job done, doesn't she? She's the one who deals with the leader of those oppressing Israel. She's a non-Israelite. She's allied to their enemies. So it's a quite a strange thought. But each of them have their role and each of them are important. And it's really not that clear, actually, who is the judge, who is the leader. And we're going to see that's for a good reason as we work our way through this story. Now, you might remember from uh, a few weeks back when we started looking through judges, there is a cycle that repeats itself through much of this book. Uh, we see um, the judge comes, then the judge rescues, then the judge dies. Israel sins. God gives them over to an enemy. And they cry out to him for help. And we see that pattern repeating. And we see it here in this story. And now their oppression is really severe. They've got this uh, king, a powerful king, Jabin, situated right in the center of the land. And he is oppressing the nation. He's got a powerful army led by Sisera, situated a bit further south, who has 900 iron chariots. Uh, think of it like, you know, the, the main battle tank of the day, this in, in, unstoppable force and huge numbers. And they oppress Israel for 20 years. Now, what the judges cycle leads us to expect next is the words, and God raised up. But they're not there, are they? Instead, this is what we get. Look at verse four with me. Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at that time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites came to her to have their disputes decided. She sent for Barak, son of Abinoam, from Kadesh in Naphtali, and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, go take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun and lead the way to Mount Tabor. I will lead Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops, to the Kishon River and give him 
into your hands. Now we remember here that Deborah is a prophetess, which means she speaks God's words to God's people. Um, in, in effect, you could kind of think of her as the very mouthpiece of God speaking his words. And so what we hear then is God speaking to Barak through her uh, in the words, God commands you to do this. What do you expect? Well, you expect Barak to say, yes, okay, let's go, let's do it. What do we get? Well, verse 8. Barak said uh, to her, if you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. Very well, Deborah said, I will go with you. But because of the way you are going about this, the honour will not be yours, for the Lord will hand over Sisera to a woman. So Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh, where he summoned Zebulun and Naphtali. 10,000 men followed him, and Deborah also went with him. Now, traditionally, Barak gets a real bad rap for this conversation here because it kind of reads as if he's a coward. You know, Barak, oh, the great guy called by God, but he needs a woman to hold his hand into battle. But is that fair? Is that a fair way to treat this leader that God's called? I mean, remember what God's actually asked him to do here. God's essentially taken him to go take his knife uh, to a gunfight. He's going into this outgunned, outnumbered. I mean, how are you going to feel about that? But secondly, is this really cowardice? Is Barak scared and unwilling? I mean, remember, Deborah is God's mouthpiece, uh, God's words to his people. Um, and in more than that, in fact, she's the sign of God's presence with his people. And so maybe what Barak is asking is, yeah, I, I'll do it. But only if you, God, he's referring to, only if you will go with me. Otherwise, what's the point? <laughs> In fact, the ESV uh, kind of seems to suggest that that's the case. The ESV records uh, Deborah's response as this. I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory. See, there's less sign of confrontation or disagreement there, isn't there? And so when you stick all of this together, well, Maybe Barak actually isn't a coward. Maybe he's willing to do this. And he's going. He's simply asking God to go with him. I mean, he's facing a huge army. He's doing it in God's word, uh, uh, because of God's word. And he's going, knowing, having been warned, that the glory actually isn't going to be his. I mean, that portrait is a really humble guy, a really impressive leader of God's people. And so together they go and they gather the army under this promise that Barak himself is not going to receive the glory for what happens. The glory is going to go to a woman. Which woman? Well, it seems very clear it's going to be Deborah, doesn't it? She's the godly, uh, inspiring, great leader of his people. Surely she's going to receive the glory. Or will she? Now the story is interrupted. Verse 11. Now Heber the Kenite had left the other Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, Moses' brother-in-law, and pitched his tent by the great tree in Zananim near Kedesh. Um, Heber moves house. We think, why is that recorded? Uh, well, we're going to see why it's significant. But we also just need to understand here, the Kenites had been uh, allies of Israel that settled in the land with them, amongst them, 
as they were commanded to do. But Heber here has broken with the people of Israel and he's allied himself to Jabin. He's on their side now. Important detail, just file that away for future reference. Because now the story moves on and we get to the account of the battle in verse 12. Uh, pick up with me at verse 12. When they told Sisera that Barak, son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera gathered together his 900 iron chariots and all the men with him from Harasheth Hagoyim to the Kishon River. Then Deborah said to Barak, Go, this is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? So Barak went down Mount Tabor, followed by 10,000 men. At Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword, and Sisera abandoned his chariot and fled on foot. But Barak pursued the chariots and army as far as Harasheth Hagoyim. All the troops of Sisera fell by the sword. Not a man was left. <laughs> we, we've had a really long build up to this battle, but it's all over, isn't it? We, with actually very little detail now. Um, Barak gathers his army and God gathers the enemy together in the right place. And then it's all over. God wins. The army's routed and utterly destroyed. We get this picture of Barak and his army charging down Mount Tabor and then it's done. They're, they're mopping up the last of the resistance, wiping out every last soldier. And we have this picture of Barak, you know, searching the field, stamping out every one of the army, with Sisera, on the other hand, heading the other way, running away, going into hiding. And lo and behold, where does he turn up? At Heber the Canaanites, at his allies. And Heber's wife, Jael, greets him. Look at verse 17. Sisera, however, fled on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, because there were friendly relations between Jabin, king of Hazor, and the clan of Heber the Kenite. Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Come, my lord, come right in. Don't be afraid. So he entered her tent and she put a covering over him. I'm thirsty, he said. Please give me some water. She opened a skin of milk, gave him a drink and covered him up. Stand in the doorway of the tent, he told her. If someone comes by and asks you, is anyone here? Say no. But Jael, Heber's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him while he lay fast asleep, exhausted. She drove the tent peg through his temple into the ground and he died. Hospitality, protection, friendship and violence. Sisera is lulled to sleep and then he is literally nailed to the ground. It's, it's brutal stuff, isn't it? It's absolutely gruesome. But in the midst of this really bizarre account, we've actually found our hero, haven't we? She's the one who's wiped out the leader of, the resist, of God's enemies. She's the one who's finished them off. But, but what an anti-hero she is. I mean, first of all, she's a woman, which is you know, culturally at that time totally unexpected. Secondly, she's a non-Israelite. She's uh, been allied to the enemy's side. She's broken the you know, untouchable rules of hospitality at the time. What's more, she's broken all these moral laws too. And yet, it's to her, it's to jail that God's promise comes true. It's not to Deborah as we'd expect. It's to the least likely of all people. It's to jail the Kenite. For whatever reason, she has broken with her husband. She's thrown her lot in with Israel and with Israel's God. 
and he uses her to achieve his purposes. See, it's an amazing picture, isn't it, of God's sovereignty throughout this story. He's the one in charge. He's the one directing. He's the one arranging everything that's taking place here. He's working in and amongst and through his people to his end, to do exactly as he plans and he wills. And he uses even the most unlikely of people and the most unexpected of details. He's at work through all of them in a way that we would never have imagined. Uh, I realised the other day that next year, 2021, um, is my 20-year reunion, uh, or will be my 20-year reunion, uh, of graduating year 10. Um, I've realised that I'm old, uh, which is a bit of a sad realisation. Um, now, I don't know if that reunion will go ahead, and even if it does, I don't know if I'll go. But I, I reckon you can agree with me that the most interesting part of school reunions um, is really actually seeing just how people turned out. I mean, be honest, you, you're kind of curious, aren't you? You want to know where your classmates ended up and what happened to them. Because what do you do on the day you leave school? Um, at your assembly or graduation or whatever you do, well, you look around the room and you look at all the people there and you think, what's going to be of us? Where's he or she going to end up? What, what, what are we going to do? What's going to happen? What's going to happen to that class nerd who, you know, straight A's in every subject? What's going to happen to the jock who was so awesome at sport? What's going to happen to the rebels? What's going to happen to the dags? Where are we going to be? Yeah, I mean, you try to imagine it. And it's only at the reunion you see just how wrong or just how right you actually were. And sometimes the surprises are wild, aren't they? You know, that kid who really wasn't into school but was into all sorts of, you know, kind of illegal substances, he's actually a really successful business owner. You know, that one who was voted most likely to succeed never even made it out of college. There's all sorts of surprises. And it's the same when we look into how God works. There's all sorts of surprises. When we see the ways that things turn out under him, that it almost never goes as we would expect. The most unexpected of ways, the most unlikely of people. Now, of course, we're not condoning jail's actions. This is not a great way to use a tent peg and a hammer, but it's no less used by God's plan. But not just that, the mundane details too. This prophetess under her palm tree, this man uncertain about his place in the scheme of things, this woman moving house, all of those things, uh, God is there in each of them each woven carefully into his plan, his perfect plan, put in the right time at the right place for his design, not for theirs. They were just doing what seemed right in the time. But God has worked it for his plan. Isn't that helpful for us? I mean, these are not the times we would expect to, uh, to have been in, are they? Who started 2020 and thought, yeah, I can't wait till quarantine comes in a few months' time. This is not the place we thought we'd be in. I had never expected to be preaching at UCI. Probably you'd never be expecting to spend so much time at home. I mean, we, we, we could be tempted, couldn't we, to feel as if this is all a disaster, a massive interruption of good plans. There's so many good things we were doing, so many things we were thinking of doing. What's God going to do here? But is this outside his plan? <laughs> well, of course not. <laughs> of course not. And so what does that mean then? Well, it means that this is exactly where God wanted us. 
This is exactly how God intended us to be right at this moment. It seems unlikely, doesn't it? It seems so hard for us to imagine, but God is no less working out his plan right now, right in this. And in fact, when we look back through history, it's, it turns out it's actually in the darkest and oddest times that God seems to do his greatest of works. Now, maybe that's true today, maybe not, I don't know. But isn't it exciting to think, well, what could God be doing today? We shouldn't despair. Neither should we just disappear into our shell and just wait out this storm. But we should trust. We don't have to spend time guessing what God's doing. That's never really the answer. We're going to see that uh, next week in the story of Gideon. Instead, all we're called to do is faithfully work out his ways wherever we are, using whatever he's given us. Whether that be time or opportunities or resources, we just turn them to whatever seems good in his ways. For some of us, that means stepping up. For others of us, that means keeping on. For all of us, it means faithfully serving, waiting and trusting, knowing that he will work his plan through. I mean, ask yourself, what conversations could you have this week? whether they be family or friends or neighbour or friend uh, or, or connect, in what ways could you share a bit of God there and so perhaps see his plan advance? What's one way you could encourage a person in your connect this week? How could you together grow in Jesus and learn him more? Who's one person you could reach out to at this time? Perhaps someone in need, perhaps someone who could really use some good news who's struggling, who could maybe even have an invite to online church. What could God do even now through you, through the simple circumstances of your life in this place and time that he has put you? Well, it's time to put in our Polaroids because we're going to have a glance below the surface now and look into chapter 5. And that shadow, that, that swirl, that hint that we've seen in chapter 4, we're going to see that unveiled. We've seen, we've seen the hints there. We've seen God at work in chapter 4 and verses 6 and 7, uh, verse 15, verse 23, all these little snapshots of what God's doing. But it's here in chapter 5 that it really becomes clear just what's going on in this story. Look at verse 4 to 5 of chapter 5. O oh Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the land of Edom, the earth shook, the heavens poured, the clouds poured down water. The mountains quaked before the Lord, the one of Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. It's a celebration, isn't it? Clearly a song, clearly poetry, but no less celebrating what's true. God has come. God has come down to fight. Chapter 4 kind of pictured God for us as the ultimate chess master, you know, moving pieces on the board, uh, working out his elaborate strategy. Well, chapter 5 tells us God's actually now the ultimate chess piece and he himself steps onto the board and wipes it clean. He is a God who steps into the battle. Throughout this, this song in chapter 5, especially, say, verses 19 through 21, uh, it, it suggests to us details of how God has done this, that he's worked through the very elements themselves against Sisera and his army. It suggests that he's brought rain down in this valley to bog down the chariots and, and, and leave them kind of useless. 
that he's brought up the river, the Kishon River, to cut the army in two and to sweep many of them away. It, do, it doesn't matter the details so much. What it's telling us is God fights. And when God fights, none can stand against him. And so Barak wins. But it's all about God. He's the great warrior here. He's the one who stepped down and destroyed the enemy. Yes, Jael gets the glory for killing Sisera, but God gets the glory for winning the war. And that's the point here. His people are involved in the battle, but the fight and the victory belongs to God. At no point did the outcome rest in any of these characters' hands. At every single stage, the outcome was secure with God, always and only in him. Now, maybe this picture is kind of an unfamiliar way to, for you to think of God. I mean, we, we love to think of God as a father. That's mostly how we think of him. And, and we picture fatherly qualities to him. You know, God is friendly or God is benign. Yes, powerful, but, you know, God with a smile on his face. And all of that is very true. But here what we see is God with his blood stirred. God the father looking upon his children oppressed his beloved children, and doing something about it. And he is fury. He is the very storm itself. God the warrior, unopposable, unstoppable, victorious. And so outgunned, outnumbered as he is, there, there's no doubt for Barak. He's won because God fights for him. God wins the day. That's great news, isn't it? It's wonderful news, as unfamiliar, as strange as it is. God is a warrior. God's not a God who sits back, who lets his people sort out their mistakes. God's the one who steps in, who rescues, who fights for his people, who defeats their enemies on his, their behalf. Where there's no hope, where there's no chance, he steps in and secures the victory they need. We think what he's done here is impressive. There is so much better to come. Another day where God steps in. Another day where the earth trembles and where signs are seen in the sky. Another day where God stepped onto the field and his power was displayed for everyone to see. Where his power was displayed for his people's sake. Where God stepped down and was raised up onto a cross where he died. I mean, it's, it's unthinkable, isn't it? I mean, nothing in Judges would lead you to ever expect something as bizarre and as far out there as that. And yet, here's how it's described. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. That's Colossians 2.15, if you're taking notes. See, that, that cross, that stepping in of God, even that death, it is not defeat. It is the greatest victory of all. Sin in this terrible spiritual power is utterly defeated on the cross. Death, the final enemy, is destroyed in his resurrection. Jesus is a fighter. Jesus is a warrior. Jesus is our victor. Because we, spiritually, we're in the same but far worse place as Israel and Judges. We were caught in our rejection of God. 
we were trapped by the consequences of our sin. Not physically, of course, but spiritually. And in fact, we were far less able or likely to break free than they were. But he has fought the fight that we couldn't. And he has done it on our behalf. He has rescued. He has freed us. He has given life. And it's all because of his grace and his initiative and his power. He is our hope. He is our safety. He is our security because his power displayed on the cross and in his resurrection was for us. For all who are his people by their trust in him. And so now having rescued us, he calls his people to join in what remains. The battle is won. The fight continues. Not a physical fight again, but a spiritual fight, a spiritual battle. And it continues until he comes again. Now, for many of you, as for, for us, um, isolation has meant a whole lot more time with the kids. Uh, and it's meant, made me realise that our kids like to do a lot of things that they can't really do. Um, let me explain. Maybe uh, things like Lego. Our kids love doing Lego, but our kids are not very good at Lego. They're just a little bit young for that still. And so doing Lego with our kids is an immense tense, uh, test of my patience. You, you can picture the scene, you know, Lego pieces scattered out all over the table trying to, to build something. Uh, grab that yellow piece, kids. Um, not that yellow, the other yellow. Not that one. No, just, just a bit further there. Over there to your left, your other left. Okay, now put it here. No, not there. <laughs> there. Not like that, like this. I mean, I could go on. What does it end up with? I'll do it. <laughs> because that's the temptation, isn't it? You're working with kids uh, in all their frustrations. The temptation, the very strong temptation, I'll just do it myself. It's easier, it's quicker, it's better. But if you're a parent, you know how that, how that makes your kids feel. They're not super stoked, are they? Well, imagine God then. <laughs> I mean, do you, think, do you think God can do his plan more efficiently uh, more effectively with you <laughs> or without you. It's a no-brainer, isn't it? It's a no-brainer, of course not. And so how amazing, how incredible is it that he does it with us, that he does it with you and with me and with all his people, that he works in us, that he works through us to achieve his ends, that even today he's extending, his bringing to completion that work that Jesus has started on and won on the cross. That even now, that work of resisting spiritual powers, of extending his kingdom, of storming the very gates of Hades himself and winning souls out, he's doing that. And not by himself. He's doing it with us. He's doing it through his people. And so the question is that you have to answer, will you join in? Will you be part of this work that he is doing even now? Because our passage has a warning. I don't know if you saw it as you read through this passage, but chapter 5 has a warning for those who would hold back. Look at uh, chapter 5, verse 16. Um, sorry, verse 15. The princes of Issachar with with Deborah. Yes, Issachar was with Barak, rushing after him into the valley. In the districts of Reuben... There was much searching of heart. Why did you stay among the campfires to hear the whistling for the flocks? In the districts of Reuben, there was much searching of heart. 
Gilead stayed beyond their Jordan. And Dan, why did he linger by the ships? Asher remained on the coast and stayed in his coves. See, what it's telling us is the call went out to Israel, come, fight against your enemies. God is with you. God is fighting for you. And yet, many didn't come. Reuben, Gilead, Dan, Asher, they, they searched their hearts. They, they looked at the situation. And they hung back. I mean, you, can, you could rationalize, couldn't, it? couldn't you? It's, it's too hard. It's, it's going to be costly. It's, it's at very least going to be uncomfortable. And after all, it's not my fight. Jabin wasn't in their land. What problem is it of theirs? They stay back and they meet with scorn. And even uh, in verse 23, with cursing against one particular town who was apparently nearby. See, it is a tragedy to sit by and not join in the work God is calling us to. God is inviting us to. Yes, it is hard. Yes, it is costly. Yes, it is uncertain and certainly uncomfortable. But it's good. It's very good. Because we are joining with God in his eternal work and plan. We're, we're getting to see his hand at work all around us. Bringing life from death, growth from despair, hope in the midst of darkness. And not only do we get to see that, we get to be a part of it. What could be possibly more exciting than that? As I, I read in a book this week, which I'll actually be recommending next week, this is what the writer said. You won't miss out on the Lord's strength through being too feeble, but you might by being too safe. Jesus strengthens the weak, the wimpy, and the weary, but not the wavering. It doesn't matter who you are or where you are. God is calling you to be part of his work in this world. He's calling you to join him. Whether you're in a nursing home or just at home, whether you're in quarantine or isolation, whether you're young or old, whether you're strong or weak, whether you're an expert in the things of the Bible or feel like a novice, whether you're confident or scared, God is saying, come and join me. Come and join me in my work. It's a great work. Be part of it. See it happen. If you respond, there is immense blessing because you will see that work go out. You will see what he's doing and you'll get to share in it. So what can you do? Well, let me just quickly, as we close, suggest three things to you. Firstly, you can pray. I mean, wouldn't it be great to make isolation, to make quarantine, wherever you are, uh, a place, a real haven of, of prayer? Pray uh, for all sorts of things. Get up, and when you get up in the morning, pray. When you have your lunch, pray. Set aside times to pray. Pray with others. Pray for a willingness to serve. Pray for opportunities to serve. Pray for eyes to see places, to show love and to further God's plan. Secondly, take the initiative. Don't wait for things to happen. Don't uh, wait for opportunities to be put before you, but just take them. Look for ways to initiate conversations. Look for ways to pray with others. Look for ways to read the Bible with others. Maybe start a book club, whatever it is. 
It doesn't have to be big or polished or amazing. Just do it. I mean, Knight got that right. Just do it. <laughs> if you see your neighbor on the street, talk to them. Say, oh, look, I'm sorry. I haven't introduced myself in the 20 years we've been living here. I don't know if that's you. The two years, maybe. If you see a need, fill it. If you're having a discussion with someone else, use the, the, the chances you have to nudge it a bit deeper. Share a hope or an encouragement that's occurred to you. Invite someone to church. I mean, it's never going to be this easy to invite someone to church, is it? They just have to click a link. Church can come to them. So invite them. What else are they going to do on a Sunday morning? And thirdly, fill yourself up. Uh, I've been told an army marches on its stomach, obviously not literally. That would be weird. But no less for you. Fill yourself up. Build good habits to, to pray and to read your Bible. Pick up that book that you've been meaning to book, uh, read and just read it. No doubt you've got a, a stack of books you've never read or wanted to read. Just do it. If you don't, I've got lots of great books to recommend to you. If you say you're not a reader, we'll learn to be a reader. This is a prime time. Fill yourself up to be equipped to serve and be willing. And you will start to see God working because he is powerfully working out his plan even today and he is inviting you to join him in it. What a joy it is. What a sight to see God at work. It is never ordinary. It is never small. But it is in the ordinary and it's in the small. And it is glorious and it's good. And not only are you able to see that, you're able to be part of it too. So join him and trust him. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you uh, because you have won the ultimate victory for us. Jesus has gone in to fight on our behalf to rescue us and free us. We thank you for your grace that he would do that for us. Father, we praise you that you're active all around us, that even today you're building your kingdom, that you're rescuing the lost, that you're standing against evil. Father, we, we give you thanks for your grace that not only are you doing that all around us, but that you use us in it. You give us a place to be part of your work and to see your hand at work. Father, help us to trust you and trust your power and be willing to jump in, to use what you've given, to use the places where you've put us and to faithfully serve you there. Father, we pray that you may work through us as you've promised to do, that we would see your plan unfold all around us wonderfully, even now in this strangest of times. Work powerfully, work wonderfully, that your kingdom may grow and that by your grace we would be a part of it. In Jesus, our King and Saviour's name we pray. Amen.